I hope that's uh, an encouragement uh, to you this morning. Um, we're we're going to transition now to our time in God's Word. So if you have a Bible, uh, you can open up to Mark chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, there are a stack of Bibles over on the entrance table, and you are free to take one for the service and, and take one with you uh, if, if that would be helpful. We have many of them, and they are there for you to take. So turn with me to Mark chapter 11. Let me read God's word to us. Mark 11, starting in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is God's word. Let me pray for us briefly again. Lord, we thank you that that you are a God who, even as I just prayed before, desires to be known. You're a God who has made himself known. You haven't hidden yourself. You haven't uh, stayed off in, in the distance, but you have made yourself known, and you have made yourself known most clearly in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ, revealed here in the pages of Scripture. And so we pray that you would come to us now by your spirit and through the preaching of your word, that you would speak to us and that you would make yourself known to us. And that as we see you again, that you would fill our hearts to overflowing with love and confidence and rest and peace in you knowing the forgiveness we have in Christ and all the promises that you have made and secured to us through our Savior Jesus. Give us a sight now of our Messiah and reigning King, Jesus Christ. And do it for the sake of our joy in you and for your glory. Amen. So we have arrived at the final act of Mark's gospel, if you will. The last week of Jesus' life. Uh, We still, of course, have six chapters to go in Mark's gospel. But Mark is going to take those six chapters... Let me move this out of my way here for a second. Uh, he's going to take those six chapters uh, to talk about the events of the last week of Jesus' life. And that should tell you how important it is. He, he devotes nearly a third of his whole gospel to this final week of Jesus' life. 
Uh, now, this last week begins with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Uh, and in this display, there is something absolutely astounding that is happening that I want you to see. And Jesus is announcing that he is the promised Messiah and King. Are you guys, I don't, re- I don't do this often, I don't, I don't use movies as illustrations, but I'm going to today. Are you guys familiar with the Marvel Cinematic Universe at all? Did you guys see the Iron Man movie? Some of you, yes? Okay. <laughs> Steve's like, no, sorry. It's, not, it's a good movie. Out of all the movies, it's one of my favorites. Uh, so anyway, in this movie, uh, my fa- one of my favorite scenes in the movie is the very last scene. And Tony Stark, who is this, this billionaire... Uh, and has been secretly gallivanting around the globe, fighting crime as the Iron Man uh, is now standing before a crowd of reporters, and there's speculation that Tony Stark is Iron Man, and they're asking him questions, and he's sort of hemming and hawing, trying to convince them that he, he, he couldn't possibly be a superhero. And then in sort of a moment of, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, revelation, he, he says to the reporters in, in, in just surprise, the truth is, I am Iron Man. And the, the reporters go wild, and the, the cameras flash. The reason I tell you that is, is that's kind of what's happening here. Jesus is revealing himself to be the promised Messiah and King. In Matthew's account of these same events, as Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem, the whole city is, is stirred up and is asking this one question. Who is this? Who is it? Have you guys ever been out in public, uh, like maybe in a city or something, and uh, like a celebrity goes by, maybe a, like a, a car, someone knows there's a celebrity in it, or someone's you know, walking down, some celebrity walking down the streets of New York, and a crowd forms, and, and everyone's with it. Who is it? Who is it? Who is it over there? Right? That's, that's what's happening here in uh, our story. And that's the question we need to ask ourselves this morning. Who, who is this? Who is this? The answer that's given implicitly in Mark and Luke's account, and that is given explicitly in John and Matthew's accounts, is this. He is the king. He is the king. The king of kings. He is the great fulfillment of Zechariah's word in chapter 9, verse 9, where he says, we, we read this earlier, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Brothers and sisters, what I want you to see this morning is your king. I want you to see again Jesus Christ, your king. The three things I want you to see about King Jesus this morning. I want you to see he is a polarizing king. I want you to see that he is a perfect king. And I want you to see that he is the promised king. I've got my alliteration on point this morning. He is a polarizing king, he is a perfect king, and he is the promised king. Here we go. He is a polarizing king. Where do I see that? Remember that up to this point in Mark's gospel, and I wonder if if you have noticed this. I've mentioned it a couple times, but, but Jesus has been constantly urging people to keep quiet about him. Have you noticed that? 
constantly silencing people. When Jesus cleanses the leper, he says to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. When unclean spirits cried out, you are the son of God, Jesus silences them. When Jesus raises the little girl from the dead, he tells the family to be quiet, to keep quiet, not to tell anyone. And those are just a few examples. If if you were to this afternoon to just sort of flip through Mark's gospel, you see over and over again, Jesus silencing and trying to keep his identity on the down low. Why is Jesus constantly doing this throughout his ministry? The answer is that because he knows that as soon as his true identity as the Messiah and King is made public, as soon as it becomes clear, it's going to put pressure on the religious authorities to respond, and he knows they are going to respond with hostility. And it's not time for that yet. Right? So he understands that the clearer his identity becomes, the more these religious authorities are going to become hostile to him. But it's not time for that yet. But now, but now as Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem, it is time. It's time. Jesus is going to sort of push the envelope envelope here. He's forcing the issue. You know, maybe up to this point, the religious leaders could have dismissed Jesus as, you know, a popular teacher, as maybe, maybe even a radical kind of like miracle worker. But now he's going to declare in no uncertain terms exactly who he is. He is the promised Messiah and King, and he is going to force them to respond. We, we looked at this last week, but really this begins with Jesus' response to Bartimaeus. You remember last week? Bartimaeus, a, a, a poor, blind beggar, Jesus making his way out of the city of Jericho, and, and the blind beggar cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And I said last week that that address, Son of David, is a deeply royal and messianic address. Bartimaeus is effectively saying, O ultimate king and promised king, O divine king who is going to come and make all things right, son of David, O ultimate king. And Jesus turns around and says, Yeah? What what do you want me to do for you? Do, Do you see there's no more keeping secrets? Jesus is not concealing his identity anymore. Now, he says, yes, I am the Messiah. I am the King. Now, let's look at our passage. Let, 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 me, let me show you all of the overt messianic and royal symbolism that Mark fills this passage with. You know, it's one of the things that I've noticed about Mark's gospel. He just shows all these subtle pointers in there of of prophetic and and messianic and Old Testament imagery. It's all over the place. But let me show you. The the, the first thing to notice is the geographic location. So we're told in the passage that Jesus is drawing near to Jerusalem by way of Bethphage and Bethany. And then Mark slips in this sort of seemingly unnecessary detail. Jesus pauses at the Mount of Olives. Now, I, I don't know if you're aware of this, But the Mount of Olives as a location has all kinds of messianic connotations. Even even before David's time, King David, the Old Testament, even before King David's time, the Mount of Olives had, had become a sacred site of worship to God. After the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., 
Ezekiel has a vision of the glory of the Lord leaving Jerusalem. Do you know where it settles? Do you know where the glory of the Lord settles? It leaves the temple out of Jerusalem and it settles on the Mount of Olives. And then finally, Zechariah spoke of the Mount of Olives as the site of God's final judgment. The Mount of Olives actually is, is over Jerusalem. If you were standing atop the Mount of Olives, you'd be looking down at Jerusalem. And so Zechariah pictures this day where God's final judgment will come from the Mount of Olives. All of these things led rabbis and Jewish scholars to associate the Mount of Olives with the coming of the Messiah. And so there Jesus stands atop the Mount of Olives, which looked down on Jerusalem, and he sends his two, uh, two disciples into either Bethany or Bethphage. We don't know which one in particular. Could be either one. And there they're to find a cult. A cult. We, in in uh, Matthew's account and uh, Luke's account, we, we find that it is the, the cult of a donkey on which no one has ever sat, in which they are to untie and bring to Jesus so that he can ride into Jerusalem. Now, now what I want you to see is that Jesus is careful. You have to see this. Jesus is very carefully and intentionally orchestrating his entry into Jerusalem. He is very specifically sort of curating how he is going to make his way into Jerusalem. You know, it was, cu- it was customary for, so it, they're coming in for the Passover, right? Thousands of people are flocking into Jerusalem. And it was customary because of the festival for people who, who were riding from far distances to dismount, to walk into the city, right? So most people are actually going to get off of their horses, get off of their animals. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm not walking into the city. I'm riding into the city. Now consider that. If you go throughout the book of Mark, you will find that the main means of transportation for Jesus is what? You know how he gets places? He walks. Pretty much everywhere Jesus goes, with the exception of him taking a a, a ride in a boat, he's walking wherever he goes. But now, on the outskirts of Jerusalem, he's going to ride in. Why do you think that is? It's because Jesus is king. Let me, let, me, let me show you some more. Uh, as he rides into the city, the crowds are going to go in front of him and behind him, laying down their cloaks and branches in the streets. It uh, recalls a, a, the picture that we get in 2 Kings of, of Jehu, where the, uh, the, the people lay down their cloaks as he is a crowned king. Uh, it also calls to mind... If you, are you guys familiar with the Maccabean Revolt? You know anything about the Maccabees? It's, it's the basis for Hanukkah. So Simon Maccabeus, just 200 years earlier. So this is just 200 years before Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Simon Maccabeus rides into Jerusalem after conquering Israel's enemies and to the crowds shouting and waving palm branches. Undoubtedly, the imagery here is of a king riding into the city. What does all this mean? Jesus is presenting himself as the savior king, as the deliverer and the ruler of God's people. Mark makes mention of the fact that Jesus rides on a colt, the foal of a donkey that had never been ridden. It had never been sat upon. Why do you think that is? 
An unbroken animal was considered sacred according to the Mishnah. And so it was designated for royal use. No one got to ride the king's horse. Only the king got to ride the king's horse. In this case, the king's uh, donkey. It had to be an animal dedicated solely for the king's use. And so Jesus is to enter into Jerusalem on a donkey that no one has ever ridden upon, unbroken. And he is to enter into Jerusalem not standing, not walking, but sitting a position of royalty, right? The king takes his seat and he rules from the position of of sitting on his throne. But listen, he's not presenting himself as just any king. Listen, he's not just some other great king as the line of kings that we find in Israel's history. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the one who has a heavenly kingdom, whose whose throne is the skies, who is seated at the right hand of the Father. It, It is a picture of royal authority. And all of this together points to the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah 9. I'll read it for you again. Zechariah 19.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus has orchestrated and engineered this whole parade in such a way so as to communicate to the crowd and the religious leaders this truth. This truth. You ready? I am the promised Messiah and King. That's what he's saying. He orchestrates this whole thing to communicate with his display these words. I am the promised Messiah and King. And although Jesus disciples and the crowd following him and the crowd that comes out to Jerusalem to meet him are ultimately going to misunderstand and not get all of the implications and what that means, the message lands, right? They lay down their cloaks, they lay down palm branches, and they shout, Hosanna. Do you know what Hosanna means? It means save us. Save us, we pray. Right? They're quoting there Psalm 118. Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Psalm 118 is, is a messianic psalm that anticipates the coming of the Messiah. But the message doesn't just land on the crowd. See, see here's how I know that Jesus is communicating this. In uh, Luke's account, do you know who else comes up to him? The Pharisees come up to him. And do you know what they say to him? In, in, in the sight of Jesus' display, riding into Jerusalem, they come up to Jesus and they say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, how dare you let them praise you like this? You are their teacher, but who are you to receive praise like this? And do you know what he says to them? you, you got to love Jesus. This is what he says to them. He says, I tell you, If these were silent, the very stones would cry out. You see what he's saying to the Pharisees? He's forcing the issue. He is pushing the envelope. No more secrecy. Right? The secret isn't secret anymore. The gloves are off. And Jesus has come to announce himself as the king. Now, here's the point. I said that Jesus is a polarizing king. When Jesus receives Bartimaeus' messianic royal address as the son of David, 
when, when he rides into Jerusalem, presenting himself as the Savior King, and especially when he tells the Pharisees that if the crowd doesn't praise him, the very rocks will cry out. He is forcing the issue of his true identity. He is declaring, I am your King and your Messiah, and he is putting the Pharisees in a position where they must respond. This is what I mean by a polarizing king. He, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and he is saying, I will not, indeed I cannot be ignored or dismissed. The crowd must decide and the Pharisees must decide what they will do with Jesus' claims. They must embrace him and receive him as their king or they must rise up against him. But they cannot tolerate him. They cannot just be indifferent to him. They cannot take a casual attitude towards him. He is going to be their king. They must lay down and submit and worship, or they must rise up and rebel. There is no middle road. One one pastor put it this way. He said that in Jesus' triumphal entry, he was saying, either crown me or kill me. But there is no middle road. Either lay down your rebellion and worship or take up your arms and slaughter me, but there is no middle way. You see, Jesus is a polarizing king. Jesus comes claiming to be the promised Messiah, the divine king over all, and you have to respond. Listen, no one can honestly make them their, their way through the gospel of Mark and not hear Jesus saying these very words to them. I am the Messiah and I am your king. Now what do you say? You must respond. You, you can't sit on the sidelines. You can't, you can't sit on the fence. You can't just think Jesus a good teacher and a nice guy. He is the king. Anything less than humble submission to his kind rule is a decision to reject him. Now, if you're here this morning and you are not a follower of Christ, you need to know that you can't play politics with Jesus. You cannot play politics with Jesus. His claims will not allow it. There is no middle road. You cannot ride the fence. As you see Jesus riding into Jerusalem, you must hear him saying, I am the King of Kings and you will either have me as your Savior and Lord or you will have me as You are a judge, but you cannot have me as just a nice guy who taught some cool things. If that's you, the scriptures tell us that today is the day of salvation. What, What an encouraging word. Today is the day of salvation. Lay down your apathy, lay down your rebellion, lay down your cold indifference, and receive him as Savior and as Lord. If you're here and you are not following Christ and you have not trusted him, You can see me after the service or or talk to someone here, please. If you're a follower of Christ, if if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ this morning, I want to try and help you see this truth played out in your own life. Jesus, a polarizing king. This truth, listen to me, this truth is behind the painful process of sanctification. 
This truth is what's behind the, the, the painful process of sanctification, the good process, the necessary process, but the painful process of sanctification. You, you see, if, if you have Jesus Christ in your life as your Savior, you also have him as your king. Necessarily. You cannot have some of him. You must have all of him. And if you have him as Savior, you have him as king. And because you have him as the king, he rules over your life. A kind and gracious rule that is aimed at one thing. Conformity to the image of Jesus. He has begun a good work in you and because he is a faithful king, he will perfectly bring that work to completion. But what that means, listen, what that means is he is going to mess you up in the holiest sense of things. He is. He's going to mess you up. He is a polarizing king and he will not allow you to be ruled by him and by your sin at the same time. And so he is going to bring into your life whatever is necessary so that you continually lose all confidence in yourself, your ability, your strength, your understanding, so that you will turn to him and find your ability and strength and confidence in him. Listen, every day, If you are following Christ every day, he will be at work in your life to confront you with your weakness so that you fall down at his feet and cry, Hosanna. You are the king. I can't, I need help. I can't do it. I need you. And that's that's exactly where he wants us. Brothers and sisters, there there is no better No sweeter, no safer, no more joyful place to be than at the feet of King Jesus. And I'll tell you why. It's because he is a perfect king. He is a polarizing king, but he is also a perfect king. What do I mean? I mean that Jesus Christ is the king who is the fullness of perfection in all his attributes. And this episode gives us just a wonderful picture of that. Here we find Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, riding into Jerusalem, a king. All the pomp, the crowd shouting and praising, Hosanna, palm leaves being laid down. And yet there is an obvious paradox that that colors the whole episode. A, A detail that seems to be almost lost on the crowd. And it is this detail, that the great king is riding in on a baby donkey. The great king, the great and glorious king of all, king of kings, lord of lords, riding in on a baby donkey. Again, Zechariah 19.9 reads, Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That, that word foal, that's the baby part. The foal of a donkey. Matthew's account tells us they bring to Jesus a donkey and her foal, the young colt of the donkey for Jesus to ride. I, I almost titled this point, I, still had, I had another P. I almost titled this, Jesus is a perplexing king. And I'll tell you why. Because it seems so backwards, doesn't it? It seems so upside down that the great king of kings should come in such a low and humble status that he would ride in on a little baby Donkey, shouldn't he have some great stallion 
some great chariot, some war stallion to ride in on. But no, he comes on this little humble donkey. But here in this detail is the perfection of King Jesus. You see, Jesus the King, who is worthy of all praise, such that if the crowds failed to praise him, the rocks would cry out, he comes humbly. And one thing you need to understand that is that throughout the ancient world, uh, horses were associated with war. Did you know that? Uh, Jeremy, I think in your prayer and even in the text, you reference that idea of, of people trusting in horses. Trusting in horses for what? To win the battle. Right? Horses were associated with war. Kings would parade through the streets of conquered villages or back to their home cities atop war stallions. But donkeys were animals that signified what, do you think? Peace. Horses signified war, but donkeys signified peace. So here is a picture of the righteous king who has come to his own, though they have not received him. Remember, right? he's coming, they have not received him, but he doesn't come on a horse to make war. He comes, listen, he comes to a city and he comes to a people that are going to hate him and condemn him and kill him, but he doesn't come to destroy them. He comes humbly on a donkey to make peace. Uh, immediately after Luke's account of Jesus' triumphal entry, we find Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem. You remember that scene? Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem. Here, the triumphant king, but then immediately after, he goes, this is Luke's account, he goes into the city, all the pomp, all the fanfare, Jesus, Messiah, the promised king, and then immediately after that, he's weeping over Jerusalem. He says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for what? Peace. The things that make for peace. But now, he says, they are hidden from your eyes. You see, he is the triumphant, the righteous, and the compassionate and weeping king. You have never met a king, or anyone for that matter, like this. Have you ever noticed how difficult it is for us to exhibit seemingly opposite virtues at the same time? Here's what I mean. I have never met anyone that was exactly the right proportion of confrontational also with the right proportion of compassion. Do you see what I'm saying? I've never met anyone that was exactly the right amount confrontational and at the same time, the exact right amount compassion. We tend to default more to one side. Or you can think of it this way. The scriptures say that we ought to speak the truth in love. And all of us will bend more to one of those poles. You will, either, you will either bend more towards being a truth teller or you will bend more towards being someone who extends love. Now, of course, I don't mean that to say that saying true things is not loving, but you, I think you get the idea. Uh, there will be people that, that at the expense of re- really communicating a heartfelt, deep love are like, no, I just tell it how it is. I tell the truth. And then there are people that at times will shy away from the truth because they want to make sure the person they're talking to feels loved and seen and accepted and cared for. And we, and we, we tend to favor one of those 
sides. Or, or you can think of my Tony Stark example, right? My, my Iron Man example, right? Iron Man, Tony Stark, he is this awe-inspiring, heroic figure. But all throughout the movie, you find that he is this ostentatious, braggadocious, arrogant guy. He's got all these character defects. Or here's another example that came to mind. You guys, all right, so I'm, I'm, I'm doing all the faux pas. I got the movie illustration and I've got my sports illustration. Did you watch the Super Bowl? Okay, I know, I'm, I'm imagining not many of you are Tom Brady fans, but he is probably undeniable the greatest quarterback of all time. On the one hand, you see this incredible display of athleticism in his victory over the Chiefs, right? Just like, how is this guy this good? And then what do you see him doing a couple days later? He's totally smashed, drunk. From the back of the boat, he is hucking the Lombardi trophy to another boat. And you think, how can this guy, who is so amazing, at the same time have all these character defects? The, listen, here's the point I'm trying to make. You have never met someone who was absolutely awe-inspiring. You have never met anyone who is absolutely awe-inspiring, and yet at the very same time, equally as humble. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. More, a billion times more awe-inspiring than a guy who can throw a football, and yet infinitely humble, who makes himself low takes the posture of a servant. Do you notice how he's described in Zechariah? He is the coming righteous king who is humble and brings salvation. He's a righteous. Do you know what that word righteous means? It means he is morally perfect. Can you imagine a morally perfect being? And yet, even in the perfections of all his moral beauty, he is humble. And lo, bringing salvation. And here he is in Mark's gospel. The king of kings receiving a king's entrance and celebration. And yet at the same time, on his way into Jerusalem to die. Do you see the perfections of Jesus? You see, he hasn't come as a king who coerces his subjects to bow down out of fear. He comes as a servant king who lays down his life for his people in love. Truth and love. And all throughout the scripture, the perfections of Jesus can be seen. Listen, he is the righteous king, and yet he is also the suffering servant. He is eternally transcendent, and yet unceasingly imminent. Listen, do you know what those words mean? Transcendent, imminent? Transcendence is the gap that exists between you and God. It's a big gap. He is the creator, you are the creature. He is transcendent. He is far off. But you know what imminence is? It means he's near to you. It means he draws near to you. Even though there is this huge gap, yet he is imminent with you. He is always near to you. I read this morning in in my scripture reading, I read Proverbs 18.24. It says this, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. that's, that's That's the Lord, his imminence. He is fully God, and yet he is fully man. He is full of truth and grace. He is infinitely just, and he is boundless in mercy. He is filled with anger for sin, and yet his heart overflows with love towards sinners. 
He is sinless and yet sympathetic. He is majestic and yet humble. He is mighty and yet meek. He is absolutely sovereign. Listen, he is absolutely sovereign and yet silent in the face of his suffering. Did you notice in the passage where that little picture that you get of Jesus' sovereignty? He's on the top of the mountain and he says to his disciples, you know, go into the village and there's going to be a cult there. Untie it and bring it to me. It's a demonstration of the absolute sovereignty of God over human hearts, over animals. He's sovereign over all of it. And yet, he still is silent in the face of his suffering. He is perfectly holy and yet eternally happy. He is completely self-sufficient and yet utterly reliant on his Father. Did you notice that there was a, there's a passage or a verse in here that, that I, I was going to make a whole point of it, but it's just sort of just a passing little phrase. Uh, verse three says, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. Just the, what is that? The, four words. The Lord has need. Those things, those words should not go together. Of course, he doesn't have need. The, 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 the donkey is his. It's his. He owns it. But look, see Jesus who actually comes in flesh and puts himself in the position of need. Where, where, where he actually re- has to rely upon other people and most ultimately rely upon his heavenly father. He is powerful and yet gentle. He is strong and yet kind. He is resolute and yet tender. He is the lion of Judah and he is the lamb who was slain. He is the conquering king, and he is the crucified savior. Do do you see his perfections? Is that how you see him? You you know, in in the same way that we have this bent, some bend more this way and some the other way, we also tend to emphasize in our minds and hearts certain aspects of Jesus' character. Do you ever notice that about yourself? Some of you When you consider Jesus, you tend towards thinking of him primarily as a transcendent God, as your creator, as your king, right? You are exceedingly aware of of the way in which he is far off and different from you, right? You see him as righteous and just and true and sinless and sovereign and powerful and strong Etc. Right? You 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 see him as the God who is worthy of all our worship and all our praise and all our adoration, all our obedience. And while all of that is gloriously true, I don't mean to diminish that in any way. All of that is gloriously true. But I think those of you in that camp can often find yourselves given to discouragement and despair. Why? Because you are so often aware of this fact that you don't measure up. You're so often aware of the fact of how different you are, how far short you fall of God's holy standard. You are aware that he is above and you are below and you feel the distance. You know that he is just and you are filled with sin and so you feel more intuitively the distance there is between you and Jesus. But you need to see this morning Jesus the King who is far above and yet 
and yet who is humble and who draws near. What you need to see this morning is Jesus Christ coming as man and taking on flesh, walking in your shoes so that he could take on your sin and suffer in your place. You need to see Jesus, listen, you need to see Jesus riding on a donkey, a beast of burden, carrying on his shoulder the burden of your sin. You need to see his heart of love and compassion for you. You must not lose sight of him as king, but you must see him as the king whose mercy towards you is is never ending, who can sympathize with you in your weaknesses, who is gentle and tender with you, whose heart towards you is deep compassion. So that's these people over here, but then there will be people on the other side. Others of you this morning will bend towards seeing Jesus as imminent and near as a friend. right? When you think of Jesus, you gravitate towards thinking about him in his humanity. You intuitively feel his nearness to you. right? You think of Jesus as your friend and your, your closest confidant. And the attributes that sort of take up the forefront of your uh, mental bandwidth are his love and his compassion, his grace and his kindness towards you. And your temptation... Right? On this hand, you have the temptation to despair and to become discouraged because of how far off. But the temptation over here is to, be, is to presume upon the grace of God. It, it is to um, grow apathetic towards your own sin and spiritual growth and to presume on his grace and kindness. Right? You, you know him as a friend and, and so then you don't take seriously the reality that he is a holy and righteous king. Again, while we must never forget or diminish in our minds his nearness to us and his heart of compassion and love towards us, we can't also forget that he is the sovereign king of kings. What what that person needs to see this morning is that he is a righteous king who has not rescued you so that you can remain in your sin. No, he's transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom. You need to see him as a holy, mighty, resolute, strong, righteous king who has died so that his people might be conformed into his image. You must see the king who is both strong and kind, who is powerful and yet gentle, who is resolute and tender to bring about the completion of his work in you. Listen, here's the point. The point is that for every season, for every moment of your life, Jesus is a perfect king who is for you exactly what you need. You may find that you are both of those people on the same day, by the way. You may find that you're this person over here who feels the distance, and then you're also this person over here who grows apathetic to your sin. And what you need is a perfect king. And Jesus is a perfect king who can be trusted. He is a polarizing king. He is the perfect king, and he is the promised king. Finally, Jesus' dramatic entry into Jerusalem on a donkey to the praises and shouts of the crowd shows us that he is without question 
the promised fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. He is the righteous king who comes humbly to bring salvation. And the fact that Jesus does not rebuke Bartimaeus when he addresses him as the son of David, and the fact that Jesus has very purposefully orchestrated his entrance to, to put his identity as the promised Messiah and king on display, has the crowd at an all-time high in terms of anticipation and excitement. Can you imagine being the disciples on the way into Jerusalem? Can you imagine being the crowd on the way into Jerusalem? Can you imagine hearing Bartimaeus say, Son of David, and Jesus says, Yeah? And then can you imagine Jesus saying, I need a donkey, I'm going to ride into Jerusalem. And then can you imagine the crowds running out from Jerusalem? And who is this? The anticipation is at an all-time high. Listen, no doubt the disciples are thinking this to themselves. Remember, the disciples are constantly asking Jesus, like, is it time? Like, now? Are you going to come in your glory? You got James and John a couple weeks ago asking, Jesus, when you come in your glory, can we sit one at your right and one at your left? Even after Jesus ascends in Acts 1, you find the disciples saying, is it time now, Jesus? They had to be thinking to themselves, okay, this is it. This is it. All this time we've been waiting for Jesus to sort of out himself as the Messiah and King and to march into Jerusalem and make his way to the temple and establish his throne and drive out the Romans and reestablish Israel as a dominant national power. And now it's happening. Finally, it's happening. Look, Jesus is riding and the crowds are shouting. Hosanna, the palms are waving, the cloaks on the ground. Oh my goodness, it's about to go down. Can you imagine their excitement, their enthusiasm, their anticipation as Jesus begins to march into Jerusalem? But then can you imagine how confused and how befuddled they must have been when Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem, goes into the temple, and then looks around and looks at his watch and says, it's getting late, we better go home. It is the anticlimax of all anticlimaxes. He goes into the temple and he says, The hour is late. Let's go home. He looks around, surveys the scene. Time to go home. The disciples must have been like, What? Uh, did we miss something? And they did miss something. Here's what they missed. What they missed was that, well, two things, two things they missed. The disciples missed that all along, the great climax of Jesus' earthly ministry was not going to be a victorious march into Jerusalem to overthrow the religious establishment and the Roman army. The great climax of Jesus' earthly ministry is not going to be the overthrow of the Roman army. No, the great climax is going to be his march outside the city gates, up the hill of Golgotha to the cross. The the culmination of Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem was not going to be in conquering the Roman army, but in conquering sin and death. It's there at the cross where all Jesus' perfections are clearly seen. It's, It's there at the cross where he meets our greatest need, not for earthly deliverance from oppressive governments, but for deliverance from sin. It's there at the cross where Jesus is crowned with a crown of thorns, mocked as he is sarcastically addressed as king of the Jews. And it's there on the cross where as king, he lays his life down for the very people that put him there. The Jews, the Romans, the disciples, you, me, 
It's there on the cross where he takes on himself the burden of your sin. And it's there on the cross where we are confronted with his true identity and are forced to respond. You know, there is this, there is a climax in Mark. Uh, Mark 15, uh, Jesus is, is hanging on the cross. It comes from a Gentile, by the way. There's a Roman centurion, and he's standing there at the foot of the cross, and he sees Jesus hanging there all bloody and battered. Mark 15, we're going to get there. It says this, Mark 15, 39, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. See, at the cross, there's no denying. At the cross, his perfections are clearly seen. He is truly the Son of God. There he is in, in all his glory, the, crucif- the crucified Son of God, killed for you, crushed under the weight of God's judgment for sin. And how will you respond to him? You can't play the fence, you can't ride the fence, you can't go down the middle of the road. He- there he is. The king hanging on the cross. You must respond. The second thing, here's the second thing the disciples miss. The second reason for this astoundingly anticlimactic moment is that Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem is actually a pointer. It's actually a pointer to another entry. Another triumphant entry. It's his royal march into Jerusalem was just a foretaste of that day when Jesus was going to come again to the day when Jesus Christ would arrive not on a baby donkey, but on a white horse. You know know the picture I'm talking about? In Revelation 19, let me read it to you. Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw, this is John's vision, then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You see, there is another coming, there is another entry where he comes as the victorious king to rid the earth of all evil and set everything right again. Brothers and sisters, we must never ever, you must never ever forget that Jesus died on the cross in your place. But we must always remember that he did not stay there. He rose from the dead and he ascended to the right hand of God where he is seated as the king of kings and is ruling and reigning until all his enemies should be made a footstool. He is coming to finally deliver all his creation from futility and from from sin and from evil. And brothers and sisters, there is such hope in this picture of Jesus' triumphal entry because it points to our ultimate hope of Jesus' return. All suffering will be vanquished. All evil will be punished. Justice and righteousness will prevail. And he and we will be with our God forever and ever. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, he is coming soon. 
Be encouraged. Take heart. He is coming soon. Lord, come quickly. And and we are comforted by the promise of his second coming. And we pray in hope. Listen, you hear the language of Revelation 19. How can we hear those words as comfort and hope? We, we, We can do that because we know that before he came as a warrior, seated on a horse to destroy all his enemies, he came as a savior, humble and mounted on the foal of a donkey, not to destroy us, but to rescue us, to deliver us, to purchase the full forgiveness of our sins and our inclusion in his glorious kingdom. And so we cry, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, indeed, come quickly. Come quickly, Lord. We, we thank you for the great hope that we have that you will one day come and make everything right. And we thank you that you are our King, the King of kings and Lord of lords, worthy of all praise and adoration. We thank you that you are a perfect King, that you deal with us, deal with us perfectly in our weakness, that you, you, you don't... Uh, Quit pursuing us, but you do it with such sweetness and gentleness and tenderness and and power and might and grace and love. Lord, help us to trust you. In every moment, in every trial, in every suffering, in every hardship, help us to trust you, our kind and good and gracious King knowing that, Lord Jesus, you have laid down your life for us, that we might be reconciled to our Heavenly Father forever. Oh God, receive all our praise and all our worship. Glorify your name in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.